0: So last week, we finished Galatians 4. Galatians 4, as you remember, talked about the difference between slave and free. As I said at the time, Paul is writing a starchy letter, so he's using extreme examples. The idea of the child being a slave in his own house is one such hyperbolic example. The child is not a slave. The child doesn't have to clean out the cesspit and do all the stuff that an actual slave would have to do. It's simply that the child doesn't get to make all of his own decisions. Somebody else is making decisions for him in most cases, or in, in most important cases. And the business with the two covenants compared to Hagar and Sarah, what I think that meant is that Judaism had turned the Torah into something burdensome instead of something that was supposed to be a blessing. In addition to which, the idea that the covenant at Sinai was written on tablets of stone, which was a metaphor for hearts of stone. So the idea that once it's written where it's supposed to be on the human heart, it becomes freedom the words themselves don't change it's simply the location that it's written so now we're going to come on to chapter five and again this is one of those places where if you want to you can misunderstand paul paul god bless him gives you every opportunity in the world to misunderstand him and i want to do verses one through six and then i'll come back and talk about them for freedom messiah has set us free For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now, in verse 3, where he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law, and then you are severed from Christ. Now, if you read the early church fathers, there is a lot of language like that as the church was separating from the synagogue, especially with the relation to things like Sabbath. If you keep the Sabbath, then you've lost your portion in Christ. There's a lot of that language in the early church. So, as you read verses 1 through 6 in Galatians 5, it falls right into that kind of language. I will suggest, however, that it's not saying that at all because of verse 4. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. There's your subject. So what he's talking about is not circumcision per se. It's circumcision as a sign that you want to be justified by the law. And as I said earlier, this whole letter... Is in response to former Pharisaic Jews who are now messianic, in other words, they believe in Christ, who are going around to the Gentiles saying, in order to be in the kingdom of God, you've got to get circumcised. And what Paul is saying is that is not correct. If you decide that the only way in to the kingdom of God is through a work that somebody does, i.e., circumcision, and you've lost the plot. You came into the kingdom of God by the sovereign act of God, by the grace of God. You received the spirit. You're in. You don't need to do anything else to be in the kingdom of God. And so what he's saying here is now that you're in, if you believe that you have to do something to get really in, you've lost it. You're not doing what's right. The whole spirit here is, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. Paul is not against circumcision, because as you all know from your history or Bible study, he has two young men who are his disciples, assistants, whatever you call them, Timothy and Titus. Titus is... 100% Gentile. Timothy is Jewish because his mother was Jewish. So when Paul takes those two young men under his wing, he does not have Titus get circumcised. Titus is a Gentile. No point in getting him circumcised. He does have Timothy get circumcised as an adult because Timothy, according to the Torah, is a Jew. So the idea of circumcision is not the problem. The idea that a Gentile, in order to come into the kingdom of God, must be circumcised and become a Jew, that's the problem. Now, having said all of that, which I believe is absolutely correct, there are circumstances under which Gentiles must become circumcised. It says in the Torah that if anybody comes in and sojourns among you, and wants to eat the Passover, then have all of his males be circumcised, then he can eat the Passover. That's in the Torah. So the idea then is somebody, nomadic, tribe, whatever, coming through Israel, and they say, wow, we'd like to keep the Passover, we'd like to honor God, and so forth. In order for that to happen, their males have to be circumcised. If they don't care to eat the Passover, there's no requirement that they be circumcised. The only thing that you cannot do uncircumcised in the kingdom of God is eat the Passover. That's it. Everything else is open to you. And furthermore, what God says in the Torah is there's one law for everybody. Everybody that sojourns among you is subject to exactly the same law. So it isn't the case that the Gentiles have their own set of laws and the Jews have a different set of laws. None of that applies. The only question becomes, do they want to eat the Passover? Because the Passover is a Hebrew feast. It is the liberation of the Hebrews. So if you want to keep that feast, you essentially have to become a Hebrew. But if you want to live in Israel and you don't want to eat the Passover and and they don't have a Passover today because they don't have a temple and they can't do the Passover properly so they don't have one. We have memorial seders, that's not the Passover. But when the Passover starts up again as it will, and they sacrifice lambs again as they will on a Passover, if a Gentile wants to eat of that sacrifice, he must be circumcised. But that's the only time it's ever required. So what these Messianic Pharisaic Jews are doing is they're misunderstanding both Moses and Christ. In other words, nowhere in the Torah does it say that a Gentile sojourning among the Israelites has to be circumcised, except that one place. So what they're saying is, in order to be a member of the kingdom of God, you have to be circumcised. They are, as I say, misreading Moses because Moses doesn't require any of that. So what I'm suggesting to you here, the subject of the whole letter, is adult male circumcision in order to come into the kingdom of God and be saved. There's no such requirement. Paul is saying there's no such requirement. And what Paul is further saying is if you become convinced that that's what you have to do to be in the kingdom of God, You have fallen out of grace and you've fallen into works and you've missed the plot. If you get circumcised, basically that's your entry into being a Jew. The whole law here in this case, I am not sure, is Torah. In other words, if you join this group, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that they buy into that they're going to have you do as well. That's a guess, again, on my part. It doesn't specifically say that in the grammar. And as I've been saying over and over, Paul is not hostile to the Torah. So the idea of keeping the Torah, you would, in fact, come under the covenant at Sinai at that point, whatever that means in that context. The context here is what's important, because lots of people will cherry-pick, if you will, versus two, three, and four, and stop short of five. Five is the thing that gives you the context. And what he's saying is, if you're looking to be justified by circumcision, you have missed it, because that is not how you become justified. You become justified through faith, just the way Abraham did. So if you just read verses two through five and say, Paul is against the law, against circumcision, I'm I'm suggesting that you're misreading it. And again, understand, Paul is more than half ticked. He is writing a very strong letter. Let me read 6 again, I want to make a comment on that. For in Messiah Yeshua, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. So what he's saying here is, In order to be a member of the kingdom of God, it doesn't matter whether you are circumcised or not. The idea is not that circumcision doesn't count for anything. It's part of the covenant. So yes, it does count for something, but not in the context of who gets to come into the kingdom of God. That is not an entrance requirement. Verse 7, You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion was not from him who calls you, and him who calls you would be Messiah, the Spirit. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Ding, 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 ding. Remember when we started this study, I said that there were three instances of the same idea. you got the kingdom parables, you've got Paul's pastoral letters, and you've got the seven letters of the seven churches. And what I said at the beginning is that The seven kingdom parables, the seven letters of Paul, and the seven letters of Yeshua are all about the same subjects. So the kingdom parable that we're talking about here is a woman hid leaven in three measures of meal, and pretty soon it was all leavened. That's in Matthew 13. So what he's saying here is, A little leaven, leaven's the whole lump. And you remember when we talked about the kingdom parables in the first session we had, my translation says a woman hid some leaven in three measures. And I told you that the Greek word there can either be hid or mixed. Same word. Mixing leaven in or hiding leaven is the Greek word that you would use would be exactly the same. I like hidden because it implies something secret. And when we get to the letter to Thyatira in Revelation 2, what we have there is people coming in secretly, Jezebel specifically coming in secretly and subverting the church. So this idea of something coming in, you didn't really bring it in, it got snuck in, I am suggesting to you is common to all three. So what... Paul is saying here is, remember Yeshua says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So the idea here is this is the leaven of the Pharisees in that sense. And once you let it in, the whole lump gets leavened. And that's what Paul is saying. He's using the same metaphor here. It's the same metaphor as in Matthew 13. And it's the same metaphor at the church in Thyatira in Revelation 2. The point I'm making here is the correlation because he's using the same metaphor as Messiah used in the kingdom parable. Verse 10 I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. Several things going on in that verse 11. You remember Paul, before he was converted on the road to Damascus, was a Pharisee of the Pharisees, and he was hot and heavy persecuting the church. And he was, in fact, persecuting them on the basis that this guy Yeshua was a fraud. And what I'm suggesting to you is that's what he means here by the offense of the cross. The religious establishment, the Pharisees, were offended by the idea that the sacrifice of Yeshua was in any way atoning, in any way godly. The cross was an offense to them in that sense. The other thing is he is being persecuted again by the religious establishment. Everywhere he goes, he starts a riot, gets stoned in one place. So what he's saying here is, if I am preaching the same thing as these messianic Pharisees are preaching, why is everybody bothering me? So the idea that I am being persecuted, I am being harassed, all of that kind of stuff, is an indication that I am not teaching the same thing that they're teaching. Because if I were, they wouldn't bother me. Verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. I told you, this was a strong letter. He is more than about half ticked. So verse 13. For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. And of course, you shall love your neighbor as yourself is out of Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18. So this idea that the whole law is fulfilled is in the law. This was not something that was invented by Messiah. This was something that was transmitted by Moses. And Yeshua, of course, draws attention to it. Remember, he has the conversation with the lawyer, who says, what's the most important thing in the Torah? And Yeshua says back to him, well, what do you think? And the guy says, well, just love God and love your neighbors yourself. Yeshua says, you got it. And then, of course, the guy being a spring butt wanted to get extra credit, so he asked, who's my neighbor? And that takes us into the parable of the Samaritan. But Yeshua is simply emphasizing and amplifying something that Moses said and that everybody knows. Hillel and Shammai were two rabbinic houses in Jerusalem before the Roman destruction. And Shammai was really strict and starchy and harsh, Hillel was more gentle and so forth. And the story is that a Gentile came to him, and in probably sort of a snarky way, said, can you teach me all of Torah while I stand on one foot? As in, in 25 words or less, because I can't stand on one foot for more than about that long. So that's the implication. And what Hillel said to him is, love God, love your neighbor, the rest is details. Now go study the details. So, this is Judaism 101. It's Christianity 101. It is not anything that Yeshua invented, except for the fact that I think Yeshua probably gave it to Moses. And one of the problems that we have today in the body of Christ is the body of Christ will say, Love God and love your neighbor, but they Regard love as an emotion. Love is not an emotion. Love is behavior. As I am fond of telling my dear wife very soon after we got married, of course I love you. I got up this morning, I went to work, I earned some money, I came home and I supported you, and I intend to do it again tomorrow. If I didn't love you, I wouldn't do that. I mean, certainly there's emotion there. I'm not suggesting that we're unemotional, but the point is. Love is what sustains, love is what does things, and so the details of what it means to love your neighbor are in the Torah. You don't gossip about him. you don't steal his sheep, you don't sleep with his wife, you don't do all that stuff, and those are practical examples of how you love your neighbor. I am suggesting to you that the church today has sort of gone off the beam because they regard it as an emotion. If you don't study the details, you will very possibly, without having bad motives, do something to injure your neighbor. So verse 16, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. I'm suggesting here he's talking about human nature and what the Jews call the yetzer hara, which is the evil inclination. The flesh wants to do what the flesh wants to do. And by the way, the flesh is a creation of God. It is not inherently evil. It is inherently self-interested. That's slightly different. Being self-interested will very often lead you to doing something that is evil. But having self-interest is not itself evil. The Spirit keeps you from doing the things you want to do. In other words, they keep you from unrestrained self-interest. That's the idea here. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And by the way, the Torah speaks against pretty much all of those. What the Torah does is it defines what those things are and why you should not do them. And by the way, idolatry is pretty clear. Sorcery is pretty clear. Jealousy, I would suggest to you, is probably covetousness, dealing with Greek and Hebrew. So, I mean, the words are going to be somewhat different, but the concepts are all in the Torah. And what he's saying is, if that's how you behave, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Self-control, the idea here is, remember the Tenth Commandment is, Thou shalt not covet, which means that you've got to bring your flesh under your control. And that's what self-control is. Twenty-four. And those who belong to Messiah Yeshua have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. One of the things I will suggest, we are in the period between the cutting of the new covenant, the sacrifice that ratifies the covenant, that's Yeshua, until we take possession Example that Ray Harrison used a time between you sign a contract for a house until you take possession. Ephesians 1 is your text for that. And it says the spirit is your guarantee that you have an inheritance, but you have not taken possession of it yet. And what I will suggest to you is as we go through life, we do things that are unkind. We become impatient. And if we didn't, there would be no need to warn us against them. If... The Torah had been written on our hearts when the Holy Spirit came into our lives. There wouldn't be any need for half of this letter because you wouldn't want to envy. You wouldn't want to be covetous. You wouldn't want to be impatient. You just wouldn't be. I have news for you. I can do all those things. So what I'm suggesting to you is a lot of brethren in the Sunday church think that this is all a done deal. And what I'm suggesting to you is we are in an intermediate period. The covenant's been cut, it's a done deal, but we haven't taken possession yet. And so, in that interim period, we still are perfectly capable of sinning. Certainly, no, I am. So, what will happen next, and my guess is it'll happen in the new heaven and the new earth. You could argue with that if you want to, and I wouldn't argue very hard. But when that happens, and the Torah is written on my heart, I will be incapable of sinning because I don't want to. I'm not tempted anymore. We're not, at least I'm not there right now. I still deal with temptation. I still deal with all of that stuff. And what he's saying here is when you're walking by the Spirit, that stuff is the farthest thing from your mind. And at some point it will be but right now it's not so chapter six brothers if anyone is caught in any transgression you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness keep watch on yourself lest you too be tempted notice what he's talking about he is warning you against temptation he's warning you that your brother very well may go off the rails and you need to help bring him back by the way that's why we live in a community Because if one of us goes off the rail, then it's possible that somebody else who isn't off the rails can help him get back. That's the whole point of a church or a community. And in the process, obviously, watch yourself, lest you too be tempted. As I am fond of saying, if you have problems with alcohol, your ministry is probably not to people in a bar. So you need to choose where your ministry is so that you yourself don't fall prey of the things that you're working against. If you don't have a problem with alcohol at all, then by all means, go minister to people on a bar because you won't be tempted. Verse 2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, then he is nothing. He deceives himself, but let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. Now, for those of you who are reading this in English, like I am, it looks like that's a contradiction. It says, bear one another's burdens. And then it says, each of you have to bear his own load. The underlying Greek are two different words. In the first case, what that means is, as somebody is crushed by circumstances in life, come alongside and help them. Somebody loses a job. God forbid somebody loses a family member by all means come alongside of them and help them get through that the other part of that however is there's no freeloaders you got to do your own work you cannot do somebody else's spiritual work for him he must do it himself and as i say, the two underlying greek words are different so there's two different concepts one is compassion helping somebody that's life circumstances have temporarily gotten the best of him you help him out from under that and do your best with him. But the other part of that is people make really good parasites if you let them. So at some point, you got to stand up and walk on your own two feet and carry your own pack. It's that kind of a thing. And in English, you can miss that. Verse 6, One who is taught the word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. Beat the stretched skin of a dead horse? Good is what's defined in the Torah. That's where you find definition of good. And it's not an emotion. It is objective. Verse 11. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. So what he's saying here is, I'm ticked. I'm writing this myself. I'm not dictating it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So what he's saying here is these guys are trying to get you circumcised so they will get the other Pharisees off their back. Because remember Paul earlier on says, hey, if I preach circumcision, why am I in so much trouble all the time? And what he's saying about these folks is they are preaching circumcision out of fear of the Pharisees. 13, for even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. We just mentioned that, that the reason that they're wanting these people circumcised is to get the non-Messianic Jews off their back, and it's also so that they get to be the ones that get credit for it, if you will. Verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Yeshua Messiah, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. In other words, what he's saying is, since I am sold out to Christ, I don't really care what they think. I am crucified to the world. 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Yeshua. I don't know when he actually wrote this, but he has been stoned, he's been beaten, he's been physically abused for his testimony and his teaching. And then the grace of our Lord Yeshua Messiah be with your spirit, brothers. Amen so adult circumcision is a big deal and paul as is obvious from his letter is not having any of this idea that in order to be in the kingdom of god you must be a jew does not compute basically his argument is you got called without being circumcised you got the holy spirit without being circumcised there's nothing else that you need and as i said earlier Demanding circumcisions of Gentiles is contrary to Torah. The only thing that a Gentile would have to ever get circumcised notice how I said that, the only thing a Gentile would have to get circumcised for is if he wanted to eat the Passover. Now, a Gentile may choose to get circumcised, a Gentile may choose to join the nation of Israel, nothing wrong with any of that, but it is not a condition for Entry into the kingdom of God, and it is not a condition for salvation. Now in Revelation, it's very obvious that the nations are going to be in the new heaven and the new earth, which is to say they make it past the lake of fire. And so they are saved in what I lovingly call the Baptist sense. But they're not Israel. They're still the nations, which is fine. It was always the case that the nations were going to come into the kingdom of God. Circumcision was always a mark for the Hebrew people. You can become a Hebrew and in that process get circumcised. You can circumcise your little boys for health reasons. Nothing wrong with any of that. What he's talking about is trusting in circumcision for salvation and justification. That doesn't work. In Acts 15, the Council of Jerusalem, you know, they have this big debate. Pick it up in verse 19. This is James now. Therefore, my judgment is that no one should trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, and from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. Those, by the way, are all Torah things. Verse 21, For from ancient generations Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And the way I would describe it, I don't know of any Christian church, except perhaps the early Catholic church, It says after you get saved, you should never crack your Bible. Every church that I know of, once you come into it, wants you to read your Bible, and will teach from the Bible, and conduct Bible studies and all of that. In this time and in this place, the Bibles were in the synagogue. So the only place that a Gentile convert could come to hear the Bible read was a synagogue. And so what they are saying here is, you need to do this, 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 and this, and then you will be able to come to the synagogue and you will be able to listen to Moses. And Moses will then do his work on you. Go out and make disciples of all nations? Yes. And it implied in what you just said is, What is a disciple? And I will suggest to you that a disciple is one who follows the Word of God. And at that time, the Word of God was the Torah and the Prophets. (laughs)